Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Josh Anderson with Keller Williams Realty in Nashville, Tennessee. Last year, he closed 190 transactions with a total sales volume of $45 million. His average sales price was $236,000, of which 55% were buyers and 45% were sellers. He operates a team with 10 members, one lead buyer agent, two showing specialists, one lead coordinator inside sales agent, one transaction coordinator, one listing coordinator, one marketing manager, one virtual assistant, one intern, and one team leader. Josh Anderson is the team leader of the Anderson Group. He has been an agent for seven years. In this call, Josh talks about the structure of his buyer department that closed 100 homes last year, leads coordinator, inside sales agent, who sets 15 to 20 in-office buyer appointments per month, lead buyer agent, who signs up buyers and manages the buyer team, showing specialists that show homes to 85 to 90 buyers per year, why their buyers find the right home after seeing only 5 to 10 properties. Compensation structure for the buyer department. How Josh sold 25 homes his first year by using guerrilla marketing. Why he's revamping his huge database of leads and contacts. Past client and sphere of influence program that results in repeat and referrals. How he sold 24 homes last year by referrals from out-of-area agents. Radio ads that bring him listings and earn 300% ROI. Plus, team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Josh. How are you? Great, Josh. Josh, it's great to have you with us. Josh, before we get into what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Before I got into real estate, I graduated, graduated college at LSU and graduated in finance and economics. So I uh, jumped into working at an investment bank, did a long internship there on the research side, and then from there worked at a private client asset firm for a year in the financial industry. And in the meantime, was getting my real estate license. And, and so I was miserable enough uh, doing that that I jumped over into the real estate piece, not knowing what I was getting myself into. But it, it, it worked out and was, I've been here ever since. So it's been great. What did you not like about the financial industry? You know, I think I just, I had an idea in my head of what it was, 
what it was and what it was going to be. And, and there were days that I didn't, I wouldn't be challenged. I wouldn't be in mentored. I wouldn't, I just wasn't growing as a person. And, um, from an investment standpoint, I was getting my real estate license to buy a couple of investment properties anyway. And, um, you know, I got to the point where I've really just kind of looked at it and said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try real estate. You know, I don't, the only difference was if I had gotten in real estate, I wasn't going to be getting a steady paycheck. And I knew I couldn't stay at my job and be miserable just because of a, a steady paycheck. And, you know, about three months into it, I, I closed my first deal and it was, it was an addictive thing at that point. So it continued on. How did you choose real estate over some other alternative? Uh, it was default. It was totally by accident. Um, I was getting my real estate license just to go buy a couple investment properties on my own. I liked the idea of buying a piece of real estate and having you know some cash flow and income and, and the idea of uh, it being tangible. And so that was really... It, it was really because I was I was going to the classes and I, so it was just it really was by accident and default. I mean I, I could have easily gotten three or six months into it and gone you know this isn't what I wanted to do, but it ended up being exactly what I wanted to do, so it worked out well. When you got started, do you think you had a a fast start or a slow start? A lot of people I know had other jobs while they were getting their real estate license or when they first started, I, I had $5,000 and I said, I'm going to make this work and, or figure out if I'm going to make it work. And, and so I guess I had a faster start, but I know, you know, there's a lot of people that get into real estate with deals in hand when they get their license or they've got a buyer or a seller ready to, you know, ready to go right when they start. And so I didn't do that. I, I you know, I did open houses every Saturday and Sunday, the entire first year of my business, I didn't know really what I was doing or not doing, to tell you the truth. I just, I asked a lot of questions. Uh, at the time, they were just, you know, I just didn't know any better. But looking back on it, they weren't, they weren't bad questions. They were just, you know, out of ignorance because I didn't know enough about the real estate industry. Asked a lot of questions, asked a lot of agents if I could do open houses, uh, wrote a lot of handwritten notes, put an Excel list together. That was my, uh, you know, that was my very first database was an Excel list that, that had name, phone number, email address, uh, and physical mailing address. And that was really how I touched people. I mean, that's how I got in. Uh, I called them. I hand, you know, I was doing handwritten notes, uh, emailed them. That's it. That's kind of how I got started. I didn't, I didn't really have any money. You know, I did a lot of, I guess, guerrilla marketing, uh, inexpensive, free or inexpensive things to get going, Craigslist ads, things like that. Do you recall how many closings you had that first year? You know, I don't know the exact number. I want to say it was somewhere around 20, around 25. Uh, I did about three and a half million. It took me three and a half months to do my first deal. And then it kind of snowballed a little bit from there. I mean, you know, my first one took three and a half months and the next one was maybe two or three weeks later and then, you know, a month later and then two or three the next month and it kind of went like that. How long have you been in the business now? 2013, April of 2013 was the start of my seventh year. How many homes did you sell last year? We were just under 200. We were around 185, 190 houses for 45 or 46 million in volume. 
tell us where you're at. You're in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm sure people have heard of it, but they may not know where it is. If they were looking at a, a map of the country in Tennessee, where would it be? It's in the southeast, so it's um, and, and within within that piece, you know, the the bottom right corner, uh, not all the way to the bottom, but that that particular area, and then within Tennessee, we're dead in the middle. So it's Middle Tennessee is Nashville, Franklin, Brentwood. Uh, everybody knows it as as kind of Greater Nashville, Music City. Do you know what your population is in your area? The whole area, you know, it, it's changing. There's so many people moving here, but it's it's uh, right around, it's somewhere right a little bit above a million for the greater Nashville area. Describe your current real estate market. I think that it's very similar to a lot of other agents around the country from, who I, from what I've been talking to. is Our average price in Middle Tennessee is a little bit um, over 200000 so right around 200 205 and uh, our average price, sales price for our team is, it's changed a little bit this year. So it's it's a little bit over 250. Um, it was it's it's probably you know on the listing side they're probably a little bit higher, and then on the buyer side we work with some investors and some builders, and so um, that's where some of the the volume comes in. But just generically speaking, it's probably somewhere between 250 and 275 right now. And the, and as far as the market goes, it's certain areas it's just such a seller's market i mean you know certain areas not even not even a month worth of inventory uh, and that's what you're seeing is the values are going up so quickly um it, it, it seems like you know it's different price points um it's really a, a seller's market and certainly areas as well so you know if you go to if you go to certain parts of Nashville near the universities, I mean, everybody wants to be that walkability, that walking distance to to Vanderbilt or Belmont. And so you're seeing not very much come on the market. And there's more people that are trying to get into those neighborhoods than are moving out of those neighborhoods. So, you know, one property comes on the market and there's, you know, 20 people that are wanting to see it that day and ultimately you get five or seven offers over asking price. And then there's still those people, you know, there's still those buyers that are working with agents that either aren't being educated by their agents or they're just not listening because they're Googling somewhere, you know, they're Googling something generic that it's still a buyer's market and they're wanting to come in 10% below the market in an area like that. And it's, you know, they're not even, their offers are not, are not even being recognized. Do you have a, a niche or a specialization in your market? As far as me personally, I work just with listings. I work just on the listing side of the business, and then I've got a lead buyer's agent who works just on the buyer side, and we've really focused on the showing specialist model. Um, but a niche in our market, you know, we, we work a lot of expireds. I, I've shifted a little bit, um, not working as many expireds because there aren't near as many out there, and if they are, that means that, I mean, just with how quickly the houses are selling, it seems like that the market, if, if it's expiring, it's probably not realistically priced or the condition is really, you know, there's something wrong with it. So we've shifted a little bit more to working with builders and developers uh, in those areas and finding, so kind of finding them properties, teardowns or renovations, depending on if it's in a historic area or not, but finding them properties to, and you know, to build maybe two houses on or four houses, and then we get all those listings on the back end. So we've really been focusing on that in our market. 
Let's list the top three to five ways that you're generating leads in business. Sure. A constant is always the database, you know, past clients, sphere of influence, and referral sources. So that's that's one big piece percentage-wise of our business. And then, you know, the other... Another two that I would really cite, you know, everybody does some internet leads, but I, I don't know that I would count that one as a, as a big piece. I would say the database, the radio ads, and the agent referrals from around the country. Those would probably be the three that are the best bang for our buck, the most, you know, time that we put into each one of those. All of our radio ads are, are very specific to listings. Uh, we feel like the more listings we get, the better the listings are, the more quality buyers we're going to get out of each of those listings. So we've really kind of pushed away some of our internet lead generation and, and really focused more on on the radio ads and calling our sphere of influence and, and really focusing on getting more listings. Let's delve into the radio ads and what your experience has been there. First of all, how long have you been advertising on the radio? I'd say it's a year and a half to two years, probably closer to the two-year mark. And we did it, you know, we did it just looking for different avenues, trying to do something different than what other agents in, in the marketplace were doing. And I knew there were a handful of big, bigger agents doing the radio a couple years ago. And I know that, you know, people have done it on and off. And I tried it probably four or five years ago, and I just didn't get a really good response. And I think it has a huge, huge piece of it is being on the right station, being on the right you know, the right demographic listening to you and also the right calls to action. And so all of our radio is is geared towards sellers, but, you know, some of them are things like educating the the listenership or the viewership of the radio station, uh, educating them on what the market is or telling them what our buyer needs are. So maybe they, one of the people listening or hearing that and go, well, I have a house that fits that criteria. And then they, you know, we drive them to our website and then they respond. You know, some of them are, if you, you know, if you buy one of the homes that are currently listed by the Anderson Group with Keller Williams Realty, we'll sell yours for free. Which, you know, it's it's one of those things that they have to buy one of ours, not just a Keller Williams listing, but one of our particular listings. And our thought process is that, you know, even even having 40 or 50 or 60 listings when, you know, the chances of them actually buying one of our listings is probably pretty slim. I mean, it, it might happen. It hasn't happened yet. But, you know, that that is a call to action to get them to pick up the phone and or go to our website and and really say, hey, tell me more about this. And then you get into the dialogue and you go, oh, they're interested in selling their house. You know, we've done the guaranteed home sale We're We're just constantly looking for, you know, a no hassle, you know, we'll do a one-day listing. Uh, or no hassle guarantee listing type thing. So there's there's constantly different things that you can come up with to to get those listeners to to go to your website and inquire. Because ultimately, you know, it, it's you're wanting to get them on the phone and get them engaged. You've got several different calls to action. Let let's keep going down that list. You mentioned you have this sell a home for free when you buy your listing. And that's getting the phone to ring. You also mentioned you had a, a straight out guaranteed sell program. It sounds like you're not doing that anymore, but you've tried that in the past. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and, and we do it off and on. You know, there are so many different ways to do the guaranteed, you know, some type of guaranteed home sale. You can do 
I'll sell it next amount of days and I'll, you know, or else I'll buy it or I'll sell it next amount of days or I'll sell it for free. You know, it just depends on the comfort level. And, and you know, we've actually had fairly good, you know, response with it. It's just, you know, it, it, that, that call to action, people always want to know what the whole, the whole guaranteed home sale is. And I've had people, you know, for the most part, I've had people, they don't really even ask. I just, you know, it has to be such stringent rules or stringent guidelines that a lot of times that, you know, it's one of those things that they're not interested. I mean, it would only be somebody that would be, you know, but the the best one we've had lately is the, you know, if you, if you buy one of the Anderson group properties, we'll sell yours for free. Or if you, you know, we, and we also have a sign writer on, on some of our listings that say, if you buy this home, we'll sell yours for free. And it's the same call to action. It's just a different medium as far as, you know, getting it out there. They're driving by and going, and it's a big red, big red, you know, sign rider with white letters that say, you know, if you buy this home, we'll sell yours for free. The thought is on a property that's been hard to sell, you put it on there and it's like, well, you sold that one and then you'll sell theirs for free and you're going to get, you know, I don't want to sell anything for free if I don't have to, but getting buyer, you know, getting buyer leads that you can convert out of it is still a win. You mentioned some type of no-hassle listing. What is that? We have always done a cancellation guarantee, and that's been part of our listing agreement forever. And we've always said, you know, we're we're not going to hold somebody to a contract. Ultimately, we don't want to be in a contract with somebody that doesn't want to be in a contract with us. And nobody ever takes us up on it, but it's one of those things that the no-hassle guarantee, you know, you can do it a couple ways. I mean, it's, it's, it's basically that. It's, you know, if this is, if you want to go in a different direction with a different agent, if you want to rent your property, we're going to let you out of it. No hassle, you know, because we want to shake hands at the end of the day, pick up our son, and we want that person to be happy. Even if we didn't sell their home, maybe it's not that, you know, it might be that they just want to, you know, they've thought about it and they want to lease it out for a year, and and so it's just one of those things we we try to keep everybody happy regardless. And ultimately, we want to sell their home and find them another one or, or refer them to, you know, an agent around the country if we can. But, you know, that doesn't always happen the first time around. So basically with that guarantee, someone can cancel at any time. Yeah. I mean, we, and I, and I say, you know, on certain price points, we do a six month contract. But with that being said, I mean, things come up, people have things that happen in life. And we just say, you know, if, if something happens and you have to lease the property and you just can't afford to have it on the market and, and, and you need to get a renter in there, then, you know, we understand. We're just not going to, you know, and the reason I implemented that, um, that whole cancellation guarantee was I had people that were calling me wanting to list their property and they go, well, we have a, a month left on our contract and we're, we're stuck in this contract. And this guy wants a, you know, he wants a marketing fee of $1,500 to get out of the contract, uh, to break the contract. And, and we can't afford to do that. Or we don't think that's, and I've always said, I don't think that's good business, you know, and that's somebody, every agent runs their own business and that's totally fine. I just don't want people calling other, I don't want people that are listed with me calling other agents doing that. And I just don't think it's good business to ask, you know, you, you, you enter into an agreement to list somebody's property and it, there's the ideal situation is that you sell their property and you find them something else, but that doesn't always happen. And I'm not going to make somebody feel stuck in a contract and, you know, that's, they're never going to say anything good about you if, if, if you hold them into a contract that they don't want to be in. So we, that's just been, 
one of the things that we've done, we've always offered. Looking at these radio ads, you mentioned that one of the important factors was the station that you choose. How many stations are you on and how did you pick them? You know, I'm just on one station. Um, it is really a political talk slash financial. I mean, it's the, it's the station that there are, uh, Dave Ramsey and syndicated hosts are on. And, you know, whether or not it's, you know, conservative, liberal, whatever it is, or it's just straight money talk, I think that the demographic and the income of the listener is probably a lot higher than some of the other stations. And there's pros and cons. There's, I would say, you know, the frequency of my radio station is very big, so it goes like all the way over to another state, which is not good for me. But, you know, I can always refer those deals to people. It takes a little bit of time. But, you know, I've thought about considering, you know, a locally owned station that has a smaller frequency that's really inside this area that I really focus on. And there's pros and cons of both. So, you know, I'm not saying that it's one over the other. I think you just, you don't just pick a station to pick a station. I mean, I know there's some sports, like ESPN affiliates or some kind of sports talk. And people that listen, you know, that are in sports, they typically have disposable income. But there's also a lot of, you know, for us, I mean, I've gotten calls that are properties that are not at all ideal for me to go list. So it's just one of those things. Just pick your, think about it before you just jump into a radio station. And and that's what we did on the front end. Um, the first one that I ever advertised on, I just didn't get, and, and maybe it was, maybe it was the demographic, maybe it was the calls to action weren't strong enough. And maybe it was that I didn't do it for long enough. I mean, there are several factors that go into it, but I think you have to do radio for at least six months minimum. And it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's expensive. Not terribly expensive, but it's more expensive than, you know, somebody spending $100 a month somewhere or even $500 a month. Sounds like you've selected or picked talk radio versus music radio. Is that correct? Yes, it is a a talk radio station. Um, It's FM, but it's talk radio. But I don't, you know, I've thought about doing, you know, whether it's a smaller um, AM station, whether it's a Christian station or, you know, a specific demographic that they're talking to or a certain type of music or, you know, I mean, it just depends. Everybody, everybody, every market's a little bit different and everybody wants something a little bit different. So just step back and really think about it because it's a, it's a, I think it's a big commitment that you're making to, to do it. You mentioned cost before. Let's talk about before the cost, let's tie in the frequency. How often is your ad going out? And then what is the cost? My ad goes, it's every day for two weeks and then it's off for two weeks and it's on for two weeks. It's off for two weeks. I could bump that up. You know, I haven't bumped it up. I just haven't. I don't know that I'm going to get twice the amount of business back out of it. It's probably something I should try just to see what it is. I do more. They have specials at certain times of the year and for like the football, NFL football season starting, I kind of ramped up right there and did on some of their uh, sister stations. And so I did it on, on both stations and that way it hit more of a demographic, but, um, I'm steady on one station, talk radio all the time. So every day the, the, the ads are 60 second ads. So, I mean, they're really long and they're live and then they, 
they uh, throw a bunch of other recorded throughout the day in in there with it. And those are about I, I'm somewhere around two thousand dollars a month on radio. I think two thousand twenty two twenty two fifty maybe. The ad itself is it a thirty second spot or a sixty second spot? It's a sixty second spot. So it does a sixty second spot every single day during the Phil Valentine show, and then throughout the day they do some little fifteen second and thirty second here and there. But those aren't live. How many times do you think it's going out in the two-week period or per day? How many times is it actually going out on the air? Is it just once a day or is it multiple times a day? It's one live during a specific talk radio host. So he does it live once every day during his show. And then throughout the day, there are some shorter, like little 15 and 30 seconds spots that are just recorded that go on during like the you know, traffic or, I mean, it could be any times. It could be 6 o'clock in the morning. It could be, you know, 8.30 in the morning. But there's one live per day that's 60 seconds. Does your contract specify how many there will be presented per day? Is it is it just going to be at random when they have an open slot, or are you going to get at least three to five ads per day? How does that work? There's a certain amount per day, and I don't know what it is. I I really... I really just focus on the live one. It's every day live for two weeks, and it's all for two weeks. And the other ones are just, they kind of throw that in as part of the package. The live one is, is I mean, I, I bet I get 99% of it comes off of the live one of any of my business. What time of day is that going out? Oh, it's between like 4.30 and 6.30 in the evening. So it might be 4 and 7 even, but I mean, it's like, every day when people are on their way home from work. And the people that are listening to this talk radio station have been listening to it for years. And they're, you know, when I go, when I get those leads, I don't have any competition. I go on those leads that are just come list me. If you were going to expand your radio, would you try to get on other shows on the same station or would you go to another station? You know, I'm not, I'm not, positive. I've thought about it a little bit. Um, I don't know that I would go on. I I would probably consider looking at another station. I'd probably, if I was doing it, I'd probably look at a smaller frequency on a more niche station than doing more. And the station that I have, I've been extremely pleased with it. I just would probably go into a totally different segment and just see what kind of, uh, what kind of activity I got there. The ad itself, describe it to us. Are, are you talking in the ad? Is the host talking in the ad? Are you all talking with each other? Is it pre-recorded? Is it live? What's going on in the ad itself? So it's a live 60-second ad, and the host does it. And so he does – I can change it as often as I want. I mean, I can give him new calls to action every week. I can give him – you know, they've offered for me to do it. I just – I – personally have not done it yet because he does such a good job with them and his voice and his listenership are such fans of him that I think that the message comes across more powerfully from him than it would from me. I just think it's kind of a, a third party that's almost, you know, it's, it's, it's another person endorsing you instead of you telling the listenership how great your, your own services are. 
you mentioned that you could change these ads or what he talks about weekly. How often do you actually change the, the content of his message? I change it up. You know, I've given him two or three in the last in the last quarter probably. But it but it's one of those, you know, the one that I told you about earlier, the if you buy one of our properties we'll sell yours for free has had I mean, we've gotten so many calls and so many internet leads that have been driven to it that it's we really I don't know that we're gonna change that one anytime soon. It's just gotten such a strong response. But I think that if you run it for more than two or three months at a time, it does get kind of stale and old and I think you have to I think at least at a very minimum quarterly, you have to change it up. They have to continue hearing your name, but you have to always be offering something different, even if it's something that you offered the previous time. I think they just like to hear, you know, I think they zone out a little bit when they hear the same thing over and over. Now, do you write a script out or do you just give him kind of a general concept and he runs with it? He runs with it. He he does a great job. He's um, I've given them some different calls to action or, hey, here's our average days on the market. Here's average sale, you know, list price to sales price ratio is 98% or, you know, the last five properties we've listed, we've gotten multiple offers over. I mean, he comes up with all of it himself and, and I just give him guidelines and parameters and he runs with it. He does it. So, I, you know, I've been totally happy with how well of a, you know, how great of a job he's done with that. Let's talk about your return on investment. What have the results actually been? Are you, do you count it by how many listings you take or how much revenue you bring in? Give us some, some metrics. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it, it absolutely, I look at everything in my business and I've really started digging down even more. But, you know, everything in my business, depending on if it's on the buyer side or the listing side of the business, but I try to get, you know, my goal is to have $3 for every dollar that I spend. And so on the listing side of the business, that's a lot easier to do. The buyer side costs me a lot more money to run, so it's harder to do it on that side. But, but, the, but the radio ads are all, they're all geared toward listings. So it took me about three months uh, to get my first deal off the radio. But with that first deal, you know, so let's just say $6,000 it cost me for three months' worth of advertising. My first deal, I listed a property. We brought the buyer on that listing, so we got a you know, 6% on a $200,000 property, and then we sold them like a $400,000 property. So, you had three ends. Yeah, we, we ended up getting $20,000-plus worth of commission. You look, we got right at $3 for the dollar that we spent, even even splitting it with, the buyer side, I still, we did, and that's when I was like, okay, this is going to work. That paid for, even if we broke even and just did from a branding standpoint, you know, it paid for itself for the whole year. Moving forward, that was in your first three months. Moving forward, uh, for instance, in the last quarter, how did it perform? In the last quarter, and, and you've got to understand some of these people are ready to list immediately and some of them are, are you know, two, three, four months out. Um, but and, and again, we don't get any competition against any of them. In the last quarter, we've, I mean, you know, I don't have in front of me how many properties we've listed, but it's been a handful, at least five or six properties. And, and for the most part, everything, you know, the majority of what we list, we end up selling. I mean, it, you know, there's obviously some fallout rate. Uh, but we, let's say in the last quarter, we've probably listed five or six, and we've probably got another seven to 10 that were leads that, you know, just aren't, they just can't, 
they're not either not ready or they can't looking at the comps just can't sell. And we just put those people on top producer and we, you know, follow up with them in the future because we still ultimately paid for the lead in some capacity. So we're, we're going to put them in top producer and keep follow up with them. And one of the other things I was going to tell you is we have a specific domain name that we only use on the radio. So we can look at the back end of one of our websites and go, we know which of these leads are coming through the radio. Even if they didn't say, hey, Phil Valentine, you know, 99.7, they don't, none of that is, you know, typically they tell us where they heard about us and we always try to source our leads, but we give them uh, Nashville home, com, And so they go to that site and by going to that site, we can look on the back end and know that that's where it came from. When the radio ad is being announced, do they only announce the domain name or do they also give a phone number? It's my name over and over and over and over. I mean, in 60 seconds, you can say a lot and you can say somebody's name and the whole ad, you know, I mean, you're, you're being very redundant, uh, repetitive. So they say my phone number uh, at least two times. They say my name probably four or five times. And they say my domain name at least twice, plus the rest of the ad. I mean, think about the conversation or, or what you can say in an ad in 60 seconds, and it's a lot. When they say your phone number, is that also a unique phone number so you're able to track that that came out of the radio ad? That's something that we're working on. Not right now. You know, we, we have a newer ring central number that we're, we're working on those kind of things, but that's something, you know, but most people aren't calling us directly from that. I mean, they might call us directly, but a lot of times they're going to that website. We found that more people are, are being driven to the website than they are picking up the phone. It's just easy for people to go to the website and just submit their, you know, their name and information. Then we call them immediately. Well, I was listening to your, numbers and statistics from your prior quarter, it sounded to me like you're probably hitting closer to four or five to one on your return on investment. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it, it, it is. But, you know, like, for example, that first deal we did in the first three months, two of those sides were buyer sides. So when I listed the property, we had the buyer side on the listing, and then we, we were the buyer's agent when they went to buy. So my team, I don't necessarily, you know, I don't work on the buyer side of the business. So I listed the property. My buyer's agent worked with them on the buyer side when they, when we sold their property. And then she worked with them on the buyer side again. So the numbers do look like four or five, but when you break down a 50, 50, uh, the way our team set up with between myself and my lead buyer's agent, we're split up on a 50, 50. So on the buyer side, those numbers start getting chopped up and then it becomes you know two and a half to three but it looks like five or six to one so you're you're correct as far as the gross i'm going off gross revenue you're going off gross margin yep one of the final questions here on radio are you placing all your own ads or are you working with a third-party entity that's helping you with this radio side you know, I know there's, there are a couple out there, uh, one in particular, and, you know, I just, I knew exactly who I wanted to work with uh, from a radio standpoint, and I just didn't see what they could do for us as far as brokering the deal. So anyway, I, I went directly to 
the radio station. I knew an account, account executive there and just reached out to him and said, here's what I'm thinking. What's, you know, what does it look like? So I went directly to him. There's no right or wrong. I mean, if somebody wants to go through a broker or, or have somebody do it for them, you know, great. I just didn't that uh, one, one of them in particular works with just one person per market. And I think he was working with somebody in my office and, you know, we just, we just did it on our own and it worked out great. Do you have any final thoughts, ideas for anybody who's thinking about putting out a radio ad? The, the big things I would hit home is, you know, don't do it unless you have at least six months. You know, I mean, I tell everybody any kind of marketing and advertising, I think you pretty much have to give at least six months on all of it at a bare minimum. So if it costs five grand a month in your market, you know, have $30,000 set aside for the radio. It's just, you know, it's like postcards or anything else. It's just, it's going to take time and most people quit before it starts working. So I would have that money, have that money set aside. And I would, I would, you know, really spend some time thinking about who you want your demographic to be or your target market and, and come up with strong call to actions. And I, and I think I shared with you and I'm happy to share with anybody that wants to email me or however you want to do that. Uh, I've got plenty of different radio ads that are samples that we've done and I would be happy to share those with whoever. That'd be awesome. Yeah, we could certainly, uh, if you don't mind, we could post some up on the site and people could listen. That'd be fantastic. Thank you for offering. Sure. Yeah. Let's do this. Let's switch gears. Let's talk about your past clients, sphere of influence, your referral side of your business. I think you, you labeled it your database marketing. Sure. Let's break into that. Let's first talk about the database itself. How big is the database? How many people do you have in there? We've got a couple thousand total that are that we're actually marketing to. We have way more than that in our database. And that's been something we've really upset down with our marketing manager this year. And every week we're meeting and really kind of figuring out how to filter some things and really focus in on who we want in our database and who we don't want in our database. And obviously all of our past clients, all of our referral sources, you know, things like that are in there. The people that but there are a lot of people like, you know, our general newsletter, for example, those aren't people that are tech, that are absolutely in our top producer. But I mean, there's 25 or 30,000 people on our, on our new, our, just our generic newsletter that goes out, you know, on a monthly basis. And so those are people that have either registered on our site or, you know, it, I mean, it could be anything. It'd be past clients. It could be, you know, friends, family. It could be anybody. We've got one that's broken up as for, for agents around the country. We've got one that's, you know, for local. But we've got just a couple thousand people in our database to answer your question that we actually market to, and, and we're really breaking that down and figuring out who to get rid of and how to, how to filter certain things. So you've got this large universe of leads that you've brought in, 25, 30,000, but you have a, a much smaller subset that you really focus your efforts on. That's the 2,000 database. Tell us who is in that 2,000 database and approximately just to estimate how many of each one. For instance, how many past clients do you have in there? There's probably somewhere, there's probably 750 to 1,000, and, and these numbers are going to be generic but probably 750 to 1,000 past clients in there. There are a certain amount of, 
of that we're currently working with, which isn't a huge number because we we try to keep all of our buyer leads, you know, buyer and seller leads that aren't people that we're actively working with, not in our database. So we we have our database very broken up into different things. I mean, we want to keep our you know, all of our buyer leads we keep in in one website and one platform. It does not even go into our top producer. But the people, the, the couple thousand are really, I mean, it's somebody, it's sphere of influence, meaning it's either a past client, it's somebody that refers us business, or it's friends of friends. Like every time we do a housewarming party, you know, we want to market to those people that our clients invite to their housewarming party. And so we've got it broken up. You know, they might be on a 12-touch program instead of, you know, a 33-touch. They might get a postcard every month because when we do a housewarming party, we do, you know, they get real invitations. So we have to have their physical address, their email address, their phone number. We we capture all that information. So I guess to answer your question, I don't have exact numbers, but it's very broken up into subsets of different uh within that 2,000, 2,500. As a big picture overview, it looks like in this database you have just under half for past clients and slightly over half for, say, sphere of influence. Does that sound about right? Yes, that's correct. How do you decide who's going to go into this tighter, smaller database? You said you're going through some filters right now. What decisions are you making there? What do you, how do you decide if someone's going in this, this smaller database or not? Like one of the things that we recently did was we sent out a postcard to everybody in our database, which you know probably costs more than what we typically do, but we 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 did that manually. We typically send that to a mailhouse, but I wanted to get all of them back that weren't accurate. So we sent out all these mailers, and the ones that we got back, I went in and cross-referenced and go, I have no clue who this person is. So you know, was it somebody that was on one of our housewarming lists? And so we went in, and it's, you know, it's one of those things that certainly takes time, and, and that's probably why a lot of agents don't want to do it or don't do it, and their database ends up being a total mess. But that was a big, it's a big deal for me because I, I want to be able to go in, I want my database to be clean enough to where I can go in, and I can say, hey, I want to know who every one of our attorney clients are or everybody in our database that's an attorney. I want I want to be able to pull by their occupation. I want to be able to, I want to know who works at this company. If we're if we're trying to do relocation business with, you know, XYZ company, I want to know who all do we know that's either a past client or a referral source that works there. And just think about the power of your database if you could go in and just spend a little bit more time on the front end and enter that kind of information. And you enter it and you go, wow, I know somebody at, you know, XYZ company, we've got three clients there between somebody they can introduce us to the, the relocation department. You said that you're you're tracking that, that tighter group in top producer, is that correct? Yeah, you know, it's just one of those, um, everybody picks their own database. And I, I, I felt like after looking at all the different databases, that was the lesser of evil for us. Because I think all of them have pro, I mean, you know, we really don't use top producer, but for a very small percentage of, a, of what it's actually capable of doing. I mean, you look at what some of these databases can do, and we just don't do, we don't get, we, we don't do the newsletter through top producer. We don't, we don't send mailers through top producer. I mean, we just, we use it solely as a CRM. And my goal is to be able to 
have everybody's correct information in there and be able to actively, you know, market to our clients and call our clients and, and referral sources and, and be able to realistically use it to our advantage. Let's talk about how you're staying in front of these folks. You started to talk about touches earlier. How are you staying in touch in, in front of your past clients and sphere of influence? How often are you trying to contact them and what exactly are you doing? They're seeing our name and or hearing our voice at least on a monthly basis. And typically, most of them are getting multiple touches from us. I mean, everybody that we know know, past clients, you know, sphere of influence referrals, they're all on a 33 touch, meaning they get, they'll get touched at least 33 times throughout the year by us. And that could be everybody in our database gets 12 newsletters. And our newsletters... And not to brag, but our marketing manager does an extremely awesome job, and I'm happy to pass those things along as well and just kind of show somebody what our newsletters look like. But, you know, we've, we are constantly trying to add value because we know if we just send out a generic newsletter, somebody's going to say, you know what, I'm going to unsubscribe from this. So we're constantly trying to keep them engaged. We're constantly trying to figure out ways to, you know, get more information from them. Hey, you know, fill out this survey for us, and we're going to enter everybody that fills it out into uh, something to win an iPad or, you know, whatever. We have, you know, our social, our social media pages on there so where they can connect with us online. We're trying to add value in some capacity to everybody. We do a lot of different things. You know, people, people. We send out four to six postcards a year, uh, and we've changed that up a little bit over the years. But they're getting four to six postcards that they're seeing in the mail. That might be a football magnet. That might be, you know, just different things. Um, we physically go by. We send out an email and say, "Hey, it's March 14th. March 14th, we're going to send out pies." March 14th is Pi Day, 3.14. That's one of our little things that nobody else really does it, and we always thought it was kind of a cool little thing instead of doing a, a, a pie for Thanksgiving because we felt like there were a lot of agents in our market doing that. So we looked at March instead and go, 3.14 is March 14th, it's Pi Day. So we sent out an email, and everybody that responds, we, we physically, our team takes off that day and, and brings pies to people either at work or at their house. And our thought process is we'd rather bring it to people's work because everybody there has to live somewhere. And if they, if a bunch of people, coworkers see that their realtor's bringing them a pie, they're like, my realtor doesn't do that. Those are the high level touches that we do. We have four client parties a year and I'd like to make that even more just because I, I would rather spend money on that than, than marketing just because we get a lot of referrals and I would rather you know, spend money on those people that are already giving us business because it's a lot easier to keep that business than go find a you know, new business. So we're constantly reevaluating our marketing dollars and but as far as touches, we've got a whole plan, but that just gives you a couple ideas of different things that we do. Hey, let's talk about a few of those. You said the newsletter it sounds like that's a emailed out. It's emailed through, um, it's a company, you know, we've tried all the different companies over the years and we ended up with a company that's actually based out of Nashville. It's called Emma and it stands for email marketing. You know, they were just the easiest to deal with as far as how we could set up our websites. You know, a lot of these constant contacts and other ones, they're great, they're great to use, but they're very templated and you can't 
do different things. And Emma just allowed us to do set up our newsletter however we wanted to set it up. As far as you don't have to put your logo in this box right here. And it, it just, you know, it's more custom than some of these generic templates. We send out a general newsletter. We've got four or five different newsletters that go out to different subsets again. But, you know, our two big ones are the general newsletter that everybody's on, uh, everybody that's, you know, inquired about real estate in any capacity, as well as our sphere of influence. And then we've got one that goes out to out-of-state agents, which is really not just out-of-state agents. Any agent that we've ever come in contact with in any capacity at a conference, you know, that's family reunion, mega agent, any masterminds, any um, anywhere, any of them that have ever sent us referrals, and we send them something of value. Hey, we started implementing this in our business, you know, and it's been really great results. Oh, by the way, do you have clients moving to Middle Tennessee? We'd love to give you a referral fee and take just as good or better care of them than you, you know, you would. I would venture to say individually, we probably get as a team more referrals or just as many referrals as anybody else in the country. Um, we're very active when we go to our conferences. We're active on the referral Facebook groups. And when somebody's sending somebody to Nashville, I don't want them to think of anybody else except for the Anderson Group. I mean, I want to own it. And that's my goal. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. What percentage of your business last year came from these out-of-state or out-of-area agent referrals? We did 24 deals, I believe it was 24 deals from out-of-state agents last year. That was 16 were 16 that were closed were buyer side and eight were listing side. And so you look at it and go, it's not a huge percentage, but... 24 deals that we closed. I mean, we got a lot more than that that are still a ways out or, you know, they wanted to rent for six months or a year or whatever it is, but we closed that number. And how many agents do you have in that out-of-state, out-of-area database that you're contacting and communicating with? You know, I, I don't have an exact number. I'd say between six and 8,000. Those are all top agents that, you know, we're either in you know, a masterminds group with me at some point or in the same coaching program or just cards we pick up, you know, from meeting people at Keller Williams events or different events around the country. And it just continually grows. Um, you know, everybody that's, everybody that refers us get put on it and agents that we want to, you know, that we want to stay in touch with and mastermind with best practices, things that are working in their market that, you know, we might not have tried or it didn't work in our market in the past. Let's go back to Pi Day. You mentioned 3.14. What is the significance of 3.14? Just kind of different. 3.14 is, is, you know, when you look at it, it's March 14th. And we just thought it was a cool, different idea. Nobody was really doing it. And when you explain it to people, it was, I actually think it came from 
one of my old assistants, my my first full-time assistant who's no longer with us, I think she actually came up with the idea. And I was kind of like, you know, it's kind of cool. It's different. Most people send out pies at, you know, at or around Thanksgiving. And um, I actually like I like it for Thanksgiving, but I wanted it to be different and random than everybody else's. And so March 14th was a, yeah, it was just good. Um, we do the same thing with Girl Scout cookies. We buy a bunch of Girl Scout cookies when they come out. And we we buy two kinds in particular, Thin Mints and Samoas. And the idea behind that is, and I don't remember who, who where we saw it or, but we send all of the Samoas out to our referrals and we want Samoa, your referrals. And the Thin Mints are, we were meant to be your realtor. Kind of cheesy, but fun. And, you know, it's one of those things that we just do it and have fun with it. And people think it's cute or cheesy or whatever, but it gets in front of them. Now, these pies, something else that sounds unique to me is that you're actually going out and delivering the pies. You're not having everyone come to your office. How many pies are you delivering on that day? You know, I think we sent it out to all of our past clients and referral sources, and I think we ended up, I want to say we delivered. I was actually out of town for it this past year, and I want to say it was 86. I don't know why that number came to my mind, but it's one of those things. It was under 100. But, you know, all these pies were, let's just just call it, you know, $6 a piece because we bought them in bulk and we had them done. You're talking about less than $500 to get in front of past clients and just say, hey, we really appreciate you as a client. We'd love the opportunity to work with friends, family, coworkers, but also being able to bring them to their work and say, hey, we're dropping this off for our client. You know, are they here? Oh, and they're like, oh, you know, what's the special occasion? No, no special occasion. We're just, we're their realtor and we're just, you know, really appreciative that uh, that we were able to have the opportunity to work with them. You also mentioned that you're buying these Girl Scout cookies. Are you delivering those as well, or do you mail them out? Do people come pick them up? How do you deal with the Girl Scout cookies? We've done both. Mailing them out, we have not done. I, we've done both drop them off and or say, hey, we're going to be at, you know, this is where we're going to be. And we, we I think two, two or three years ago, we coincided one of our client parties and gave out our, we do our custom t-shirts and we had Girl Scout cookies there as well. So, but those, you know, those are the things that I think they're just touches that other agents don't do. And I think we get more out of those kind of things and they do, they, they, they certainly take time and energy to do them. It's not particularly easy because it always seems that it, it happens when, we've got the most deals going on or we need to be making our phone calls or, you know, but when in the grand scheme of things, you look at it and go, you know, you might not get an immediate deal out of it, but it's all, you're, you're keeping your name in front of them constantly. Uh, and you never know when somebody's going to send you a referral. I mean, they're just, they happen so randomly. And you mentioned uh, phone calls. Are you trying to make a certain number of phone calls per year to the people in this small database of past clients and sphere of influence? I say four times a year for phone calls is is probably the ideal number as far as just to all clients. And that's once a quarter. That's, you know, that's 
shouldn't be very difficult. For referral sources, we call them monthly, monthly to every six weeks. Depends on who they are, but we're calling them a lot more than just our regular because they're 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 referrals uh, sources that are you know some of them are sending us one deal a year some of them are sending us you know three five seven deals a year and then there's other people that you know send us more than that or or people that are clients of ours I mean I've got a couple of builders that buy you know they might buy ten twelve fifteen or twenty properties a year and so when you look at them and you put a when you assign a dollar value to some of these people which some people do, some people don't. But, I mean, you look at your best top five referral sources, you probably stay in touch with them very differently than just some client that was not a bad transaction, but somebody that you just, it was a transaction. I mean, they use you to buy a house. They'll maybe use you to buy a house again. You stay in touch with them, hoping that they do. But you don't stay in touch with those people the same that you stay in touch with your top referral sources. I don't anyway. When you're calling your top referral sources monthly, that's a lot of conversations. What are you talking about? Is it scripted out? Do you have a concept? What are you talking about with them so often? Well, the goal is to get more referrals, obviously, but you know it's really not scripted out because most of our most of our referral sources are become good business partners or even friends. And so it's not an uncomfortable conversation. It's just, hey, what are you working on? You know, my goal is to put, I want to put my referral sources, I want to add as much value to them as they're adding to me or trying to add to me. I want to, I want to add more if possible. I mean, I want to be a connector for them. I mean, if I can put them in touch with somebody that can help them and, you know, whether it's personal or professional, if I can, if I can do that, then you know, great. It's just, it's just constantly staying in front of them and connecting them and trying to be a resource, but it's not always take, take, take. I mean, my, it's not a script. It's not a conversation like who else do you know that, you know, it's not always that if it becomes that that's fine, but it's, it's like, Hey, what are you working on this month? What can I help you with? You know, who do you need to be put in touch with that kind of thing? You mentioned you have four client parties per year. What are they and when do they happen? We typically do two for referral sources and then two for all clients, including clients and referral sources. We do typically one bigger one. That bigger one is usually very family-friendly. It might be a movie. And movies, we realized, are probably not the best because you don't really get to interact with your clients. But it's good, you know, it's good because if you can find a good a good movie, whether it's a cartoon movie or a movie that's just a good, clean family movie, then it's fine. But it, we realized after doing the movie one, it really was not an ideal. It really wasn't an ideal scenario. It's a good touch, but it's not, it wasn't ideal for being able to talk and catch up. You know, other things that we were talking about doing a you know, something at a bowling alley where you rent the whole bowling alley out. That's fun for all ages, whether you have a family or it's a young professional or what. So we're looking at things like that. We've done a baseball game, like a professional baseball game, minor league, rented the entire upstairs, like the air-conditioned inside area. And it was good, 
you know, there's just, there's no perfect time to do it. And then we do a couple of happy hours for referral sources and things like that. So it's just changing it up constantly. The referral sources, how big are those get-togethers? Are you talking about 10 people, 50 people, 100 people? How many people are you trying to bring together? Well, we're trying to bring them, all the referral sources together that have sent us business. But, you know, I mean, typically at a referral source happy hour, for example, I'd say 35 to 50 people show up. We really haven't had less than probably 30 show up, but we and we've probably had as many as 75. And so, you know, those aren't all our top referral sources, but that's anybody that's ever referred us a deal. And so our goal for that is, and we also, for the referral sources, we'll invite our builders, our developers, because those aren't, they're not necessarily referral sources always, but they are absolutely people that we do multiple deals with. So they're, they're probably more than, I mean, they're definitely more than our typical client that buys one-off property or, you know, sells and then buys. So we typically invite them as well. But I mean, it's, you know, we, we only work with a handful of builders right now that we really want to work with. Yeah, you've mentioned that a couple times now that you've got these builders and developers. It sounds like they're on a smaller scale. They're, they're either taking a, an existing home and, and revamping it or maybe building on a spot lot. And you know, I think you mentioned earlier, one, two, three, four units at a time. How much of your business was that last year? What percentage of your business, how many transactions did that turn out to be last year? Last year, uh, very little, if any. I mean, we worked with a couple a couple people here. and We really, start of 2013, we really started working with a, a handful of local builders. And these aren't builders. These aren't even regional builders. These aren't, you know, these aren't the Syntexes and the Beezers. These are, these are people that are building, you know, probably... 50 houses or less per year and they've got plenty you know they've got multiple people bringing them deals and they typically whoever brings them the deal is who relists the the property so we're just we just saw the change in the market a little bit and we shifted a little bit more to working with some of these guys it's some of the deals you, you might find 50 deals and two of them end up working out but you look at two of those and go okay well we can build four on this one and we can build two on this one and those might, you know, like I just made an offer this morning for for one of my builders for three hundred and seventy, you know, three hundred seventy thousand dollar property. Well, but he's going to build two on that, and they're probably going to be two eight hundred thousand dollar deals. So it works out. It's a win for him, and it's a win for me. I get two hundred two eight hundred thousand dollar listings four months from now, and I'm going to get I'm going to sell both of them, and I'm going to get a lot of great sign calls off of it and ultimately convert several prop, you know, several buyers out of it. You just started that up here this year, 2013. How many transactions do you think you've been able to put together so far? We've either in the process or closed, you know, somewhere between uh, it's, it's a little bit less than 20, but you've got to, you know, I mean, some of these are one-off deals and, and four months later it becomes two deals that we turn around and relist. So we've we've either pending or closed, we've got somewhere, it's probably 16 to 18 for this year, yeah. But the price points on the back end of those are very ideal. I mean, they're 
because you, you end up selling two properties at six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars. I mean, you relist them at that price point. You sell them at that price point or close to it, and then and then we're getting you know buyer leads that are five, six, seven, eight hundred, whatever that price point is. So it, it's an ideal situation to work with some of these builders in some of these areas, especially the areas that there is no inventory and they're very hot. Let's do this. Let's switch gears and talk about your team. You have a, a very interesting team structure. I'd like to talk about that. And if you could, first of all, just list out all of the positions on the team. So I do all the listing side of the business right now. And then I have uh, a listing coordinator. That is uh, Devin is our listing coordinator. He He goes in and once I agree to work with somebody or once we come to an agreement to work together, he sends paperwork, sets up a time with the homeowner and the photographer to meet the photographer out there, does the sign key lockbox and gets it all ready for MLS, puts it on MLS, does all the rest of the marketing to get it up and going on, on MLS and all the other sites. So he's our listing coordinator. Again, I do all the listings right now and we're working on finding uh, a listing assistant, a listing you know, specialist to, to help me. On that side of the business, we've got an operations position that we're filling right now that will be kind of in charge of the entire administrative side of our business. We've got a transaction coordinator who does all the transaction, all the contract to close. So any contracts on the buyer or seller side right now is what she does. Then we've got a lead coordinator who she is in charge of all sign calls, all internet leads, any kind of leads that come through of any sort. She is setting those appointments and ultimately calling all of them back and trying to get buyer appointments for uh, our lead buyer's agent. Our lead buyer's agent is Nina. She runs the buyer division of the team and she has two, two showing specialists. So those two showing specialists are now Caroline and Stephanie, and they are in charge of just showing properties. So we kind of call them the property specialists, the showing specialists. They don't negotiate contracts. They don't do anything besides show properties and search for properties either on MLS or things that aren't on MLS. That's all they do. They don't do the buyer consultation. They don't do any of that. But they do get introduced at the buyer consultation to the buyer because the buyer, you know, Nina's doing the buyer consultations, but they're actually working with them when they're showing the properties. And then once they identify a property, Nina writes up the offer, negotiates the contract, and then she goes to the closing table. And then we also have a marketing manager that's in charge of all of our social media. We're working more on some PR stuff, but really in charge of all of our graphic design, all of our logos, making sure all that's up to snuff and, and compliance and doing all the doing all the different marketing and advertising for our team. And then we have a virtual assistant, Clarence. I can't forget him. He's phenomenal. He does a little bit of everything. He does he does some uh, a lot of data entry, a lot of back end things that are very, very important things, just not necessarily things that have to be done in the office. So he puts together some Excel projects for us. He, just, he does a lot, actually. It's just back-end work, internal stuff. You have an intern? 
We do have an intern as well. We actually had one that just rolled off who was an absolute rock star. I think we've made him realize he doesn't want to be in the real estate industry, but he was awesome. And now we've got another intern right now that's more of a marketing intern, whereas the other one was kind of a general administrative help, kind of you know, do a little bit of whatever. If we needed him to be a career one day and do some of that, he did. If And a lot of these kids, I mean, for any agents out there that aren't taking advantage of, of an internship program, locally we've got several universities, and most of these kids have to satisfy an internship for course credit. So, And we pay all of ours, but it's a little surprising that more agents don't take advantage of it. And I think the reason probably is it does take a little bit of time and energy to train them and get them to do things. But there's a lot of stuff in our business that they could do and not really need any guidance on. Hey, go drop this earnest money check off at wherever. You know, go put these signs out. I mean, there's a lot of things in your business that you don't need to pay somebody $20 plus an hour to do. An intern has to do something and, you know, you can pay them for mileage and you pay them on performance or you give them a stipend at the end of the uh, internship, however you want to do it. I always pay somebody at the end. The kid that we just just rolled out or rolled off of the internship, I paid him. He worked 20 hours in the summertime. He worked 20 hours for free as part of the internship and then I paid him for 20 hours worth of work. And he was... I'll say he was better than most employees. I mean, a lot of employees that I've hired over the years. So he just was great. I'd like to get into the buyer side of your business. That's really interesting how you've structured your team there. You have a, a lead buyer agent, two showing specialists, and I'm going to throw in lead coordinator or your inside sales. It sounds to me like they're all working together. And yeah. what I'd like to do some is... Some people call it inside sales and some people call it, yeah, so it's the same thing. What I'd like to do is kind of walk through the progression of a lead as it comes in, who's touching it, what they're doing it, all the way to the closing table. And I think that'll help people visualize what's going on there. So let's say you get a buyer lead. I assume your lead coordinator is the first one to contact them. How does that go? And then just kind of walk us through all the way to a closing table, who's touching and who's doing what? Sure. So a lead comes in. Caroline, who is now our showing specialist as of this week, uh, she moved over to that role. So we have a new lead coordinator. So that lead coordinator touches or calls the person back or call, you know, the person calls in. Ultimately, we're giving them the information that they need, but we're, we're running scripts on them. I mean, our lead coordinators have to do, have to have scripts partners three times a week. And our goal is we want them to be as good or better than at conversion than than any of us are. And we realized a while back, I guess, just looking at the amount of leads that we had coming in, I think we realized, wow, we really need an inside salesperson that's just dedicated to this because that makes the difference. I mean, that person is really a huge piece that a lot of agents aren't implementing. So, and that's what we found. But anyway, to answer your question, so the lead comes in, she answers any information she can. You know, if they're not working with an agent, we're ultimately digging as many questions as we can to build more rapport and then kind of go in and, and really ask them, you know, can we set an appointment with Nina, our lead buyer's agent, to meet at the office. Nina meets with them, and she basically goes through the whole 
buyer side, here's how we work. Here's our team concept. Here's who you're going to be working with. And we set the expectations. I mean, we do, I think we do a really good job of setting those expectations and, and walking them through every piece. Now that we've found the property, you know, we're going to make an offer. Then once that offer becomes a, you know, a legally binding contract, here's what happens. Then the inspection, then the appraisal, then the, so we go through that whole process with them. But so it's the lead coordinator, she sets the appointment. Nina goes to the buyer appointment in our office. Uh, so the lead coordinator has access to Google, you know, Google calendars and just puts appointments on Nina's calendar. So Nina does that. Nina introduces our showing specialists there. Sometimes the showing specialists are there, which is ideal, but it doesn't always work that way. If not, she just introduces them by name and says, our showing specialists are going to show you the property and here's how it's going to work. And then they meet with the uh, showing specialist to go look at properties. Once they've identified a property, the showing specialist calls Nina. Nina writes up the offer for the buyer. And then from there, it gets negotiated if it becomes a contract. You know, and then we go through that whole process of you know, inspections, appraisal, negotiating the inspection repairs, things like that, and then it goes to the appraisal, and then it goes to the closing table, and Nina's typically on the buyer side. She's at the closing as well, and if she's not at the closing, somebody from our team is representing, because we kind of feel like, you know, and I've had this discussion a lot with people over the years. We still go to our closings because we feel like, even though it's very time-consuming, that's kind of the last time we see some of our clients until we have a client party or until we see them again, housewarming party, whatever it is. But we feel like, you know, that is a very important process. I think it's a lot more important to show up at the closing than it is at the inspection. And that's just a personal opinion. Some people don't feel that way. But So that's kind of the whole process, if that gives you an overview. Let's talk about this lead coordinator inside sales. It's a unique position. There's not a lot of them running around. So let's see how you've kind of structured it. First of all, what's their work schedule? Are they working Monday through Friday, eight to five, or what hours are they working? We pay them hourly for 40 hours a week, but we tell them that's a decision they have to make. I mean, we're not really getting very many leads before nine o'clock in the morning for the most part, but we might get leads at you know seven and eight o'clock at night. And we've told them, we don't expect you to answer the phone at eight or nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. But we do expect you to call that lead back as soon as possible or text them or whatever it is. So it's really, at the end of the day, it's not a 40-hour position. I mean, it's certainly more than that. And they're on all the calls. Our office phones go to them on, you know, after 5.30 and on the weekends. So, I mean, they're pretty much in charge of the phones. So that's not to say, I mean, you have to understand that it makes it sound like they never have a, a life, but there's a lot of in-between time that they can do other things. It's not like we're getting a lead every four minutes. You know, they they can have the phone sitting right next to them and go back through a lot of our Internet leads, you know, whether it's group texting them or, or putting them in a dialer system and calling through, whatever it is. But they go through that. And, and, and to answer anybody that's curious about the pay is we pay them an hourly, and then we pay them for every appointment that they set that shows up they get a $40 bonus, and then they get $100 at closing. So that person's able to make, I don't know what we're paying this new girl. It's maybe $12 an hour, 
it's 10 or $12 an hour, and then $40 per appointment that's set, and then $100 at closing. So it doesn't sound like a lot, but at the volume that we're doing, that person's able to make forty-five dollars or $50,000 a year. So it, and it's one of those things that they're making more on the bonuses. Once, the, once their pipeline's full, they're making more on the bonuses and the closings than they are on the hourly a lot of times. And a good appointment setter, a good lead coordinator is going to set somewhere between 15 to 20 appointments a month in the office. So the goal is the goal is five plus per week. And there's times that we set seven in one week and then we only set three the next. You know, just uh, it is what it is. But But on average, hours have been somewhere between 15 and 20. It's hard to get over that 20 that actually, I mean, you've got to think we, we set, sometimes we set 22 or 23 and, and set only 17 of them show up and we have to call them back. And I mean, there's just, there's a certain amount of fallout and we call the morning of to make sure they're going to show. And, you know, there's people that call us the morning of and they answer and say, yeah, we're going to be there. And then they're not there four hours later. So it's, you know, it's just one of those things that everybody in the business deals with it. The showing specialist, that's also a very unique position. Sounds like these folks are just driving buyers around and, and showing the property, getting them into the property. You also mentioned, though, they may be presenting properties to the buyer to view. So they're, they're part of that process as well. Tell me more about this showing specialist position, what they're doing, how they're being compensated. You've got two of them. It must be working out. Yeah, so so the way that they're set up, the way that they're paid is they're paid off of the buyer's side. So it doesn't make sense if you're a buyer's agent and you're not doing a certain amount of deals. We deemed at least four or five deals a month is what our lead buyer's agent, Nina, had to be doing before we could justify a showing specialist. And now we're doing, you know, 10, 15, 20 deals a month and, and on some months. And so it's one of those things that it, it totally makes sense. The reason we implemented it was, you know, we had heard about it, but nobody was really doing it. And myself and one other guy from my office came back from Mega Camp in 2011, I believe, and said, we've got to figure out how to do this. And he did a great job of it. He he started a little bit before me. But anyway, his our, our thought process is, what is the one part of the process that takes the most amount of time? showing houses. So we said, can we leverage that and really get everybody focused in to where everybody's kind of doing their one thing that really is their dollar productive activities. And so our two showing specialists, one is brand new, but the other, you know, the one that's been with us the whole time, Stephanie, she has, I mean, she's gotten it down to an art and she's, never shows more than 10 houses. I mean, it is extremely rare that she would have to show 10 houses or more. I mean, ne- never. Because our goal is in the buyer consultation, we, we are very specific with them and we, and we spend a little bit more time on the front end rather than just driving people around. And, and so we spend more time and go, look, if you're in this price range, we're going to show you that 10 best houses in this price range or the five best houses in this price range. Like why there's a hundred houses to look at. Do you want to look at the other 90 that are a waste of your time that you have no interest in based on the criteria you've told us? 
And they go, no, we want to look at the 10 best and pick from there. Great, that's what we're going to do. And we typically don't even have to get to 10. So it really, it really became more about leverage and figuring out what is everybody's one thing? What is the most important use of our time? And Nina was just getting so bogged down with showing properties. And then she was coming in and trying to lead generate and convert leads and buyer, buyer leads, sign calls. It just was nobody. We were all doing kind of a you know, halfway job and not doing a very good job because you're trying to do 10 different people's jobs. And that's when we implemented the lead coordinator. We implemented the showing specialist first and then the lead coordinator, which probably should have been flipped. But... We, we figured it out based on that. And so everybody kind of does really focuses on their thing. The showing specialist gets paid, like I said, out of the buyer side. So, and I'll just tell you how we're set up is we're on a, Nina and I'm on a 50, 50 split. So let's say it's a $200,000 property just for ease, $200,000 property, the commission, $6,000. I get 3000. If the showing specialist is involved, Nina would get 2,100 showing specialist gets 900. But you have to understand that the showing specialist was involved in 85 or 90 transactions last year. She made well more than most real estate agents make. And she just has one job. Like her job is to open doors, show them the property. You know, we set them up on an auto-notify, but I mean, we're, we're digging around proactively to find them the right property so we don't have to show them 50 properties. It sounds like if I got that right, that... You're splitting up the buyer agent side between the buyer agent and the showing specialist. The buyer agent gets 70% and the showing specialist gets 30%. Does that sound right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, the showing specialist model only works in a volume-based business. I mean, if you're doing 40 deals a year, it doesn't make sense for a buyer's agent to have a showing specialist. And it really is going to be based on it's really based on the market. I mean, in California, they, they aren't going to pay 25 or 30% to the, to the showing specialist. They're going to probably pay 10% because the average price point in 250, it's 600 or 500 or whatever. So it, it's based on the area, but it still has to be volume based for it to make sense. I mean, I think a buyer's agent has to be, you know, if you're on a team and you're a buyer's agent, I think you have to be doing, you know, probably, easily more than 50 deals, probably 75 plus deals before it really makes sense, or or maybe 50 or 60 deals before it really makes sense to have a showing specialist. Because, I mean, Nina, the first year she was on my team, she did 52 or 54 deals the first year when that was without a showing specialist. Wow. So, I mean, I know there's people out there that do 50 plus deals on their own. I talked to a girl, I interviewed someone recently that she did 58 deals on her own without an assistant. I said, you know, are you crazy? I mean, to me, that's nuts. But I mean, I know there's people that can do it. I can't imagine that they're, they're working, you know, 100 plus hour weeks. And, and that's what we're trying to keep. We want everybody on our team to ex- be excited and like what they do and enjoy it and stay with us long term. And if you have if you have buyers agents and showing specialists working that much and not taking vacations or breaks, they're not they're going to last two or three years in the business and be done. It's just what's going to happen. So you've created this buyer department model, and inside that buyer department, they closed about a hundred transactions last year. It sounds like Nina, the lead buyer agent, is running that department. 
She's using showing specialists to help her with the showings, run people around, and this lead coordinator to help follow up on the leads. And then she's keeping the glue together in the middle. And she was able to double her production by bringing in these assistants. And I assume she got control of her time. You mentioned that. She's probably working fewer hours. It's a little more manageable for her. Going back through the compensation, you're paying the lead coordinator an hourly plus $40 to set an appointment and $100 for a closing fee. If I broke down the big side of the buyer commission, you're you're paying the buyer specialist 15%, Nina 35%, and then the team itself gets 50% of that commission. So I, th- I think I'm getting a big picture of what's going on in that department. My question I'm leading up to is, can you multiply it from here? Will you bring in a second lead buyer agent, have showing specialist and lead coordinator under that person? Is that where you're going with this? I think you can. I'm not certain that I'm going there right this second. You know, we're kind of in the process of looking at neighboring cities and having an agent there. And so not starting a whole nother team, but having an agent on the ground and having everything centralized in the Nashville office, but having a lead buyer's agent for a, a city that's 30 or 45 minutes away, you know, and then letting them build the same thing. But, you know, that's a conversation I'm pretty much truly letting Nina, she's kind of, I mean, she's the VP of the buyer division. She's running that division. That's, that's her baby. I mean, I've got my names on everything, but you know, it's one of those things that at the end of the day, she's running it and I'm not going to tell her how to run it. I'm going to, I will guide her and tell her what I think the future of it is. But I think where we're at right now is I don't know that we get a second buyer's agent necessarily for this immediate team. I think we get a second lead buyer's agent for a neighboring city and have all the transaction contract to close and all the operations in this centralized location. And then just having one person on the ground. And that would be our first kind of pod for this team, but they everything is still centralized here. We'd have to get more staff for the for the additional deals that we do, but I think that's that was that's kind of the idea right now. But maybe that changes. I mean, I don't I, we really have to dig in and, and and tweak some of our systems before before we get to that point. I think generally speaking, that is a conversation that we have to have is either it's either a second agent here if we want more market share and ramp up the leads, ramp up the you know lead generation and either a second one here or go to another area that's close by that we can you know extend our marketing and branding into all of middle Tennessee. The very next step in your buyer department, would it be to bring in a third showing specialist? Is there going to be a, a limitation on how many showing specialists there could be underneath a lead buyer agent? Yeah, I mean, our goal our goal is to, to, to grow and to do more deals and volume and, and, and number of transactions. But, you know, you... You get a third and fourth showing specialist. I mean, we would really have to ramp up the amount of business that we're doing. I either have to take a lot more listings. Ultimately, I have to get a prospector on the listing side of the business and a listing assistant so we can take more listings and, and serve more more sellers, and we're going to get more buyers out of it. And that that's really my next step. I've gotten the buyer division far enough to where I think that it's doing well right now. I don't want to grow it 
too much more until we grow the listing side. Because I think listings is where it's at. And I think you're seeing more and more people. I mean, that's always been the name of the game, but really going in and trying to really take a lot more listings. And by taking more listings, having more signs in the yard, we're going to get more sign calls. And we've noticed that our sign calls and our internet leads that are four-hour listings are significantly better and stronger than just internet leads. So that's probably what we'll do is I would like to see our team hire a listing specialist or a listing assistant next to help me to ultimately take over the listings and then build a kind of, I hate to use the word telemarketer, but to have several lead generators, prospectors, telemarketers calling on just listed, just solds, expireds for sale by owners, and just setting appointments for the listing specialist. That would be my ultimate goal because if we can build up that division bigger than the buyer division, the buyer division is then going to be bigger. So the driver is the listings. Absolutely. All day long. I think it always, I think in this business it always has been. I think there was a shift a couple of years ago and I think it's so easy to pay money to get internet leads. And I think that internet leads are more difficult than people think, but they're easy. They cost money, but they're easy. Whereas I would rather do the, it's a numbers game for me. I want the more people I can have calling on our behalf. It's just, again, it's just a numbers game. So just more lead generation, more phone calls, more, more appointments equals more listings. And it ultimately equals more buyers as well. Well, Josh, I'm sure there are going to be people listening to us talk. They're listening to all these people you have run around, this big staff. And the question they're going to come out with is, are you profitable? Yes. I can't do it if we're not profitable. We run pretty lean as far as, as far as marketing and advertising. I mean, we, I, I do a P&L statement every month. We look at our numbers. We, we get rid of stuff when it doesn't work. I had a great conversation with my lead coordinator, actually, about two months ago, we started this conversation, and I go, tell me what our Zillow leads look like. And she goes, well, we've set 11 appointments since March. And I go, that's great. I said, how many of them have we closed? None. Why? Well, we're, we're working with several of them. Okay, great. Then I went back to her about a month later and I go, how many of those Zillow leads were actually our, that you set appointments for were actually our listings? And she goes, all of them. And I go, get rid of Zillow. I mean, you know, and that was my big thing was in 2011, I closed 12 deals off of Zillow. 2012, I closed nine deals off of Zillow. When they, I don't know, you know, I do know, but whatever happened when they went into an IPO and became publicly traded, they changed their click-throughs and their impressions and all that stuff. And I don't know if that's the reason that it's changed, but I mean, in 2013, we're in September and I've closed zero deals from Zillow. And I go, wow, in two years, I went from being able to absolutely justify it to not being able to justify it at all. And so we just got rid of Zillow. You know, I mean, it's just one of those things. It worked It worked really well for us in the past. Something has happened, and it's not the conversion. I mean, it's not that we are converting at a, a higher or lower level. I mean, we actually think the quality of the Zillow leads have been better, but because you get impressions now instead of clicks, it's set up totally different. And so we looked at it and said, we're spending X amount of dollars. we got to get rid of it. Because I'm going to get all the all all of my listings, I'm going to get those leads anyway. They're my listings, and they're ultimately my leads. 
And so I'll get those anyway. I think the interesting lesson here is that you're tracking your P&L on a monthly basis and you're making your expenses accountable. You're, you're really trying to make sure that the dollars you're spending on the marketing are generating business in. And you're not just leaving it for chance. You're, you're questioning it on a, a monthly or a quarterly basis. Is that correct? Yeah. I, and, you know, I mean, I went through a lot of real estate and I've, I've made money. You know, the first three years, I, I tell everybody, I put every dollar I had outside of my, you know, living expenses. I put every dollar I made back into the business to build the business. But, you know, it's it's one of those things that, and, and there were a couple of years where, and there were a handful of years where I did not really track it. And I'm guilty of that. And, you know, my business coach now, I, I'm tracking it. And my, my bookkeeper does, he does my P&L statements. He gives it to me by the the fifth day of the following month and it's done by the MREA book um, it's it's broken out into gross commissions it's got incoming and outgoing referrals I mean, it's it's broken down it's broken down on the buyer side and the listing side and I know what I'm making and that's why I'm focusing more of my money on the listing side because you know that's where the business is period but I also look at it and go right now I'm getting 100% of every dollar on the listing side of the business is coming back to me Whereas on the buyer side, I only get 50, you know, I'm, I'm on a 50-50 split, so I only get 50, 50 cents of every dollar, and that's gross. Because I still have to pay assistance to staff, you know, marketing, advertising. So that's why I'm saying, you know, I, wanna, I would rather ramp up to 100-plus listings and ultimately take 300 listings a year or more, and that's where the business, that's where you're, that's where you're cranking out the deals. And that's where you're becoming more and more profitable. But it's amazing how many agents don't look at their numbers and they're spending a dollar to make 75 cents or, or they're spending a dollar to make a dollar, but they don't understand or they're not looking at it. They understand it, but they're not looking at the fact that if they spent a dollar and they made a dollar, they still have to pay taxes and their assistant and whoever else. They're, they're losing a chunk of money. So they're really just in business to say they're in business. And this is too hard of a business to, to to just do it just because. Looking at your your current model and the way the current model is working, could you tell us what your profit margin is? We're at about thirty eight to forty percent, so we're pretty high. But I'm also looking at that going. I want it to be. How can I? How can I slither you know sliver things here and there to make it higher? Or what are we spending a dollar and getting three dollars back on? Can can we spend two dollars and get this you know six dollars back out of it, or are we only going to get if we spend two dollars, we only get four back out of it? And then there's other things where we're spending a dollar and getting a dollar fifty. Well, let's get rid of it. Or why do we ha- do we have to keep it? I mean, you know, there's some things in our business that we just have to have. Top producer, I spend money on it every month, and I spend I spend money on it for the entire team, and you know, half the team doesn't necessarily use it consistently, and I feel like it's a waste of money, but we still have to have it. So you're constantly questioning whether your expenses are worthwhile. Yeah. There's a lot of things that we do that are one-time things. I mean, you know, we do a lot of housewarming parties, but, you know, we get, those are things that I think that's a good use of money. I bought a margarita machine for the housewarming party. I bought a trailer for our clients to use. Well, it's also, it's wrapped and it is, you know, I paid for it and I don't owe anything on it, but I mean, I paid for it and it gets used around town a lot. So I feel like it's a moving billboard and our clients get to use it and 
it's a win for them too. Do you pay yourself a salary? I don't right now. That's something that we, I have sat down with my CPA and my bookkeeper and we're, we're working on, you know, we're working on three or four things for, for 2014. We're looking at how to set up a profit share program for the team based on how long they've been there and profits from the team. And so we're looking at some different things, but I really don't, I don't pay myself a set salary right now. And some people do and some people don't. It's the same in setting yourself up as a corporation or an S-Corp or or an LLC. I mean, it's different in different states. How have you set yourself up? Are you a S-Corp, a C-Corp, a LLC? We're an LLC right now. My bookkeeper initially thought that being a corporation would be good and, and it ended up for the state of Tennessee not working the way that he thought it was going to work. But, you know, so we're just an LLC right now. Josh, what drives you? My work ethic is, is it's just extremely strong. I get up early and I, I don't know if I don't know if the drive is the you know the competitive uh, my competitive nature to win or to be the best or just to you know, but it's it's a little bit of all that. It's it's being it's the discipline and the work ethic and I probably get that from a combination from working, growing up on a farm and being in the military. So I, uh, I just feel like you're going to come to work all day and you might as well do it the best or be the best that you can. So that's kind of my driving factor really to be, to be the best. Why have you been so successful? I think the biggest thing I tell people all the time, I'm certainly not the smartest person in the room. I, I, um, I think the biggest thing is doing the basics and doing them well doing them consistent and persistent, you know, I mean, just, just consistently and being persistent about it. Again, I'm not, I'm not doing anything out of the ordinary. It's not rocket science. At the end of the day, it's picking up the phone, lead generating, asking for business, letting people know what you do. And and my, my thing in real estate has always been, my biggest thing has been, you might or might not use me, but you're going to know what I do. I mean, if you use someone else and I didn't do a good job of letting you know what I do for a living, then it's my fault. If you know what I do and you don't use me, then I can't control that. But at least you know what I do. At least I'm I'm in the mix. I'm an option. So that's just one of those things. I think there's too many secret agents out there and people are so worried about what their friends are going to think or this or that. And I just, I just kind of put it out there. I, you know, I'm, I'm very consistent. Probably my biggest strong suit is follow-up. If you tell me to quit calling you or you're, you know, I uh, tell people if you're going to hear from me unless you tell me absolutely to quit calling you or you're dead. And it's kind of a joke, but not really. I mean, I, I'm just really good at follow-up and that's, I think that's the name of the game. The initial call is just the introduction piece of it. I've stayed in touch with people for three and four and five years. They're like, you know, we're we're definitely using you. I can't believe you stayed in touch with us this long. And it's just a quick phone call. Hey, just checking in. Just wanted to see, you know, if you guys, you know, if I could be a resource for you, if you had any questions or if you need anything. Are you ready, you know, are you ready to sell your house? Josh, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Well, there's two or three things. I think one of the biggest, most important things is setting a foundation um, and also learning your scripts and dialogues well enough to internalize them. 
I think in scripts and dialogues, once you know that and you can ask people the right questions, nobody can really ever tell you no. It might be no, not right now, but it's not necessarily no forever. And I think that if you if you know the objections people are going to say and you have an objection handler for that, I think that that's one of the most important things that I didn't do a good job of and I went back and learned them. But it's one of those things that I think that's very important. And I also tell people from a leverage standpoint, one of the best things I did early on, even though it was part-time, I got an assistant. For me, I knew that I was really terrible at paperwork. I mean, I was bad. And I knew that. So it was one of those things that I went in and, and just got an assistant. I mean, you think about how many hours a week. It's the same as a buyer's agent. How many hours a week does a buyer spend showing properties? You know, that's an important part of the puzzle uh, as far as getting them under contract. But God, if you didn't have to show the properties, how much time would that free up to go lead generate 10 hours, 20 hours a week? So for me, I hated paperwork and I hated it because I wasn't good at it. And if I could get somebody else to do my contract to close and some of my marketing and advertising, God, that saved me you know, dozens of hours a week. So if I can even take half those hours and lead generate and ask more people for business, go have lunch with more people, more face-to-face, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to succeed in this business. So it really is just getting in there, and everybody that joins my team has a 100-day program they have to go through. And it's pretty stringent and pretty tough, but, I mean, it's just part of it. If you want to be part of the Anderson Group, and you want to be on a highly successful team, these are the things that you have to do. It's not negotiable. It's not. It's just part of it. You know, it's writing handwritten notes to everybody in your database. Once you get done handwriting those and mailing them out, then you call them and say, hey, just want to make sure you got our handwritten note. Just want to let you know that I've had a career change. Go through that whole thing. And then make sure you have all the right contact information for top producer so you can do. And then you go, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to email you as well. So you just make sure you have my contact information. Um, and then you put it in, set it up. You know, if you've only got 50 people in your database, you should be able to go through it every 30 days easily until you're building it up from open houses and meeting more people. And one of the things I tell all the new agents, anybody that joins our team, you have to ask people for business. You have to, even if, if you can't ask them for business, ask them, who do they know that you need to know? And that's an easy question. Who do you know that I need to know? It doesn't have to be a buyer or seller. It might be somebody that's a good connector. It might be, somebody that's a council person. It might be, I mean, it could be anybody, a great business owner. But you're constantly, you know, our business is constantly digging for, you're digging for deals, but you're also digging for who can you connect people to? How can you add value? Because if you add value to enough other people, they're going to add value back to your bottom line. Well, Josh, you're right. Adding value to others first has a way of magically adding value back to you. Your tenacious follow-up skills result in more and more people knowing about your program and saying yes. You showed us your fully functioning buyer department with a lead buyer agent, leads coordinator, and showing specialist. You're taking calculated risks and building new models of success. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 124 homes last year by farming her database. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. 
And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.